This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Welcome to episode four of Trawling for Ten Baggers, um, and just thank you very much to the listeners that have got in touch with us already via our Twitter handle, um, just your comments and feedback, um, and that you're actually liking the content, uh, really is exciting for us because, you know, we're just a couple of mug punters ourselves trying to think, come up with stuff really that's going to help you in your trading journey, uh, and as much get an enjoyment for us as well. We'd really appreciate um, some, some feedback, whether that be reviews on the Apple podcast section um, and the ratings, which helps us enormously. Um, share it with your friends, your mum, your dog, whoever you think might get something out of it. Um, and particularly any sort of feedback about what we're doing, what we're not doing very well. Um, you know, we can take it both ways. Um, episode four, we're going to be talking to Ben Williamson of Fresh Equities, and I think it's going to be a bit little bit different to, to what you've been sort of listening, but we're coming from the view that a lot of punters will get in stocks and get very frustrated when you'll see the words trading halt come up in a capital raising. Hopefully, Ben will shed some light onto the do's and don'ts and how it sort of works from an institutional or section 708 um, with the attached SVP or rights issue. Joel, did you have anything to add there, mate? Yeah, I think that covers off things well, Sam. The feedback we've received so far is really appreciated. Like you mentioned, this episode covers very different content to the previous few, and we'd certainly would really like to know what sort of things listeners want us to dig deeper into, to ignore, or to explore more. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We, we've had a lot of bit of feedback already saying that the audio, uh, there's a bit of echo, which we're, we're looking at improving with some updated gear, um, but we really uh, would do appreciate what some content that you guys might guys and girls might be listening or might be wanting. So um, the website to, to link into everything is obviously trawlingfor10baggers.com that has the, the Twitter handle and the links there. Uh, and thanks again for, for joining us on the journey. Well, it seems almost inevitable that whilst holding and hunting for a small cap or speculative stock waiting for your 10 bags, it'll have to raise capital. So today we're joined by Ben Williamson from Fresh Equities to help explain the ins and outs of placements, entitlement offers and other capital raises for listed companies. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. To start with, could you give our guests a bit of an introduction and background on how you got into dealing with Australian equities? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, so Ben Williamson, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fresh Equities, which is a relatively new uh, service out there where we bring together and aggregate all primary transactions on the ASX. So we started off with placements and shortfalls to SPPs and rights issues. Kicked off about a year ago and done over 200 deals. Before that, I was more in private equity and, and high growth business. What got you into that, Ben? I uh, started off life as, a, as an accountant at KPMG, did my time there, and a bit of commercial work at Telstra, and then I joined a really high growth business and, and took a, a leap of faith there called True Value Solar back in 2010, I think, and that business 
funnily enough, ten bags uh, within within a year. So it's great to hear. It's always good when our guests have a ten bagger under their belt. Yeah. Um, so I I joined in it at the end of its second year when I just done twenty mil revenue, uh, and it did over two hundred in its third year. And during that process as well, during that year of growth, uh, we also sold the business for the owner. So that was kind of my you know, my exit of large corporates and into uh, high growth business. And I stayed with that same group of people, uh, you know, that was 2010 when Blair stayed at the CEO of that business, uh, was our first investor in Fresh, which was fantastic to carry that through. And we've, you know, done a few businesses as well. So I've helped on either, either sort of first or second chair in over a dozen private equity style transactions for about a quarter of a billion dollars. That was kind of my, my deal hat, which I thought was pretty good at the time. And since we started fresh back in September last year, we've worked on over, well over 200, would be 220 deals or something like that so far. I think we've done 175 this calendar year. Um, and it's just at the end of July. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. Thanks, Ben. So Fresh works with raising capital for listed companies. Could you give us an overview of some of the times and methods in which listed companies would go about raising funds? Yeah, so from a listed point of view, uh, you know, the first capital raise for a listed company is obviously the IPO, right? Initial public offering, that is when the stock comes to market. Um, one of the interesting things that I always like to point out with IPOs is, is that an IPO is typically priced based on an estimate. It doesn't have market pricing built into it yet. So you see a lot of IPOs that'll come on at 20 cents. And 20 cents is obviously the most common uh, number. So, you know, from a valuation point of view, there's questions over, is it the right value? And, you know, I I think that that's, that's something that people can um, do really well off if they can understand the market dynamics. So you look at um, Split It is a really good example this year. IPO'd at 20 cents, ran towards $2, I think, uh, and settled back down a bit. But then you have the other side where you'll see IPOs and 12 months later, they'll be 5 cents. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an IPO. Subsequent to that, when companies, listed companies want to raise money and they want to use equity to do it, there's three main ways that they can do that. They can do a, uh, a share purchase uh, plan, which is SPP. So every shareholder in the company has the right to apply to buy up to $15,000 each. So that's typically used when you have a large retail investor base, so a lot of smaller holders. And then you've got a, um, a rights issue as well where you get the ability to buy, so it's either called a rights or an entitlement issue, it's the same thing. Uh, you get the ability to buy a number of shares at a certain price as a ratio of what you hold. So say a, a one for five. So for every five shares, you get to buy one at a predetermined price um, and participate that way. And, you know, that's, that's more common um, or more commonly used when you've got larger shareholders in the bank who, you know, their rights are above $15,000. And so that $15,000 is a capped, is a, like a, a, a regulation, is it, that you can't be issued more than, than that amount? And there's SPP 
plan? Uh, you can apply for shortfall. Yeah, you can apply for shortfall, so you can definitely be issued more. Uh, but the SPP is, is capped at fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, per per applicant. And then you've got those two ways of raising money. Uh, you know, the, the, they've seen as quite fair, um, as in that they reward and enable all existing shareholders to participate. Um, you usually see them as well when there is a sort of a third type of capital raise called a placement, which is what we normally play in, which is, you know, a company goes into a, a, a trading halt for two days and during that two days they try and raise the money from uh, what are called sophisticated or professional investors. So people who tick certain boxes and um, they're able to come in typically with larger checks and, and quickly. Uh, and it really is at the um, exclusion of, of of a lot of retail holders. Uh, there's no getting around that. Unfortunately, the legislation doesn't provide for that. Ben, do you want to just take us through that? Because we've had certain conversations with with previous guests about this, about you know how it's you know maybe an unfair playing field, but you know perhaps just sort of um, just the technicals around whether you're sophisticated or uh, professional. Sure. So. There's a section of the Corps Act called um, Section 708, uh, which goes through who is able to be offered deals without a disclosure document, which is what it comes down to. So a placement is done typically with just a term sheet. So it's a, it's a two-page document. It's not a disclosure document like a, um, an information memorandum or, or a prospectus. The... Um, the information that comes through that is usually quite succinct, right? The use of funds will be three dot points. The um, you know information will be on there about who the directors are, about any new developments, you know, such as <clears throat> you know we're buying another mining tenement is a really good example, and we need to raise a million dollars to buy it and a million dollars to to explore it, and so we're raising two million dollars in the form of a placement. The Hurdles for people to get on there, uh, typically, so for a professional investor, you need to have 10 million gross assets. So you can have debt in there, but it's 10 million gross assets. Or be a holder of a Australian financial services license. That's so a professional side. And then on the sophisticated side, it, uh, there's a number of items. But the most common one is either for the last two years, having an income of two hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars net, uh, or sorry, no, two hundred fifty thousand dollars gross, or have two point five million dollars in net assets. And for both of those, you need an accountant to sign off, and you um, so that you know, someone like myself who is beholden to AFSL regulations has to cite that certificate and it needs to be um, within the last two years. Something to, um, that's not commonly known is that people with businesses, people that control a business, you know, it could be anything. It could be a, a consulting business, a, um, a news agency, you know, a retail business, anything. You know, you could be a builder. You're, if you control that entity, you're allowed to count its revenue against the income component and you're allowed to count its uh, net assets against yours. 
So, you know, if you control a business that turns over $300,000 and you earn $100,000, consult your accountant, but you potentially qualify. That's really helpful, Ben, because that might mean a lot of people that thought they were otherwise excluded might fit that category after all. There's a lot of a lot of people that fall into that category. You think it's the number of sparkies and builders out there who probably, you know, don't take home as much because they employ a few people, you know, so they're not taking home and, and not feeling like they're earning 250000 But the, the concept of the law is such that, you know, you have sufficient knowledge of handling money uh, and and processes and it's, they've got to draw a line somewhere, right? Like where do they draw the line and, and this is where they drew it. So I think the inclusion of the companies is really good because if you employ a few people and you, therefore your turnover meets the threshold, you know, you, you've probably spent more time dealing with financial statements and understanding business risks and the like than someone who doesn't. Oh, thanks for that, Ben. That's some great background for people and something that people can definitely explore further with their advisors. Yeah, no advice. Absolutely. It's a good reminder. This is just general information. So talk to your own accountant or advisor for information specific to your situation. Ben, just to come back to the different raising types, we were talking before offline about some of the statistics on different amounts and methods of money raised. Could you give us a bit of a rundown on some of those figures that you had there? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So we, um, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, so, you know, these, these, are, these are slightly outdated numbers now, the 2018 numbers from the ASX, but roughly $22 billion raised in IPOs and um, $55 billion raised in the secondary market, so placements, SPPs, and rights issues. So of the $55 billion, only six of that, only six of the 55 is placement. So SPPs and rights, or, you know, they take up a large component of, um, you know, 90% of the secondary money raised. I think you were saying there was some real variation in the size of different companies and the amounts of money they raised in different parts of the market? Yeah, the average raise in a placement, like people talk about, um, you know, sometimes they come to a website and say, oh, it looks like you do a lot of small raises. I said, well, the average raise on the ASX through a placement is $8 million. So there's a lot of small, <laughs> there's 750 of them a year uh, at, at an average of $8 million. There are a lot of small raises that happen. Uh, that come through. It's a very interesting market. It's something that gets overlooked quite a lot. Like a lot of the trading websites, a lot of brokerage websites concentrate on the ASX 200, um, which is fair enough. It's, it's, I think the ASX 200 is 88% of the market cap, uh, and it's probably more of that in trading volume, but it only represents 8% of all listed companies. So... You know, we tend to deal in the bottom 2,000 rather than the top 200 because uh, they're the companies that need the money. Uh, you know, they're not paying dividends. They're not making profits yet. They're out there exploring or, you know, building the next gen of um, antibiotics uh, and they need the money to be able to do that. Um, could you just give us a little bit, you mentioned the different arm raising types before, Ben, the placements and SPPs and entitlement offers. Are you able to go in a little bit more detail about the different, um, I guess, is there any major differences in when companies might use those ones? There's any sort of times you see certain types of raises being done in different situations? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, you spoke before, I think Sam spoke before about how 
um, placements can be seen as unfair. I think that, you know, it all needs to be weighed up. You see a lot of people or a lot of stocks come into problems when they do a, an a SPP or a rights issue. They, in effect, have this overhang for the next month, right? So an SPP or a rights issue, um, it will launch today, they'll put out a notice on Monday, and then the closing date is four weeks from there. What effectively happens then to the stock price is that you're giving this indication and you're giving this ability to everyone to buy in at a lower amount. Uh, so what happens is it goes X right. So, you know, there's a, there's a date at which if you're a shareholder in the company, you're able to participate. Sometimes that's before the announcement, sometimes it's after. And they go out to the market and say, this is the X right state. So if you've got $10,000 in a stock and it's at 50 cents, and the share purchase plan allows you to buy up to 15000 at 40 cents, right? Uh, it goes X right, so you can sell your stock on the market and know that you can buy it back at 40 cents. So what tends to happen is a lot of people do that to, to lock in a, a profit and trade the profit, um, and that brings a lot of sell-side volume onto the market and tends to lower the price down there and, and creates this month-long overhang where, you know, people can arbitrage that market between 40 and 42, et cetera, for that time period. And so I guess it depends on the size of the company and the shareholder register as well? Every share structure is different. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll have very heavy top 20s where you've got um, an extremely tightly held register, like uh, what's it? Jinder Lee. If you have a look at Jinder Lee, it's a really interesting example where one person owns a, a large part. It trades very um, erratically because it's a very thinly held. Um, and ben, just Jinder Lee is ticker code JRL, I believe. Is that correct? I think so, yes. Yeah. And when you mean tight, you just uh, mean, sorry, that the top 20 hold like 70, 80%, don't you? That's what you mean. Correct. So essentially, you've 20% free flight. Yeah, and typically they're sort of, you know, the large holders like that tend to not move as quickly, um, or sorry, not as quickly, but they don't tend to move as often. They're not typically trading in and out of a position. They're, you know, they're high confidence investors. Uh, and so, you know, the the you look at that as a as a structure and you look at the way that they would go about raising money and then you compare that to a, a stock, you know, at the other end of the spectrum that's very widely held, like a Galaxy Resources or something like that, where they have many more shareholders that are much more spread out. So there is actually quite a lot of science that goes into it because, um, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but placements are nice and quick and short. You can do SPPs if you have a large number of retail holders and typically you'll see a lot of placements with uh, SPPs attached. So it might be a, a $5 million raise by the way of a placement and a $2 million SPP. And then with a rights issue as well for the larger investors, for what, you know, the institutional investors, they can accelerate it. So they effectively make their portion of that a placement and do it over a couple of days. So there's these, there's a myriad of ways to cut it, uh, and we haven't even spoken about pricing and options, etc. 
there's there's many ways to do it, and every company is different. And it, you know you have to weigh up the shareholder base, the spread, who are the shareholders, the larger ones that they likely to participate or not, etc. And that's where the corporate advisor comes in and does a lot of work to make sure that you know their job is to is to make sure that it is the right mix and the right structure. Just going on there from when you've been mentioning the price and the like the way it's priced, are there any um, restrictions as to maybe the, the amount that can be raised and the discounts to the market? Yes, I think just on pricing because you know there's there's typically you know in the in the halls of hot copper or um, Facebook and, and Twitter groups, there's usually a lot of blowback by retail investors when they see placements done at a discount. And, you know, I've, I've written an article and I'm literally about to publish it, but it just becomes a supply and demand thing, right? So, you know, you pick a stock that turns over ten or $20,000 a day, so it's not a hugely traded stock at all. Uh, it's got quite low liquidity. If you wanted to um, generate, so it's only generating $20,000 a day of demand for the stock. At, at its current price level. If you want to go and raise $2 million, which is 100 times the demand, you need to adjust the price. It's simple economics, right? So you've got a de- demand and supply curve. If you increase demand, price drops. Uh, and so by adjusting the price and putting in certain things like options, it can help support that. Uh, and so it doesn't drop too far. That's really interesting. I know um, you see it all the time when, you, when you're seeing um, retail punters or, or just holders in general really upset at the deep discount and, and, and they haven't quite factored that maybe if it was a 20 million market cap that they've just raised, you know, six, seven million bucks, that's, that's a good chunk of their market cap. And of course, the price, the price needs to be adjusted to cover that risk. You know, you can't just issue 30, 40% of your shares. Yeah, I always, I always compare it. You know, one of the first things that we do, um, so every day we work on, you know, one to six capital raises at the moment. And one of the first things I do is uh, I look at a stock's liquidity because if you're if you're putting money into a listed stock, one of the reasons that you're putting money in there is for liquidity. And if there's no liquidity, it's a, it's, it's a higher risk and therefore a higher risk, you would want a better deal. So that's usually a good indication, uh, you know, higher a lot of liquidity stocks tend to have higher discounts and things like options in them. Um, but Joel, back to your question. So it varies a little bit, but essentially um, every, you know, the stocks have a 15% allocation rate for placement or for issuing new stock without a, um, without a shareholder vote. So if you're a $10 million market cap, you can raise $1.5 million in a, in a placement and issue the shares, and then you have to go back to your AGM or, or call an AGM and get that refreshed. And so that, that tends to be, you know, more often than not, people push towards that number um, because it's there, and if they can get it, they, they, they typically should. In terms of pricing and options, uh, it's really interesting. So since we, I haven't cut these numbers for the last couple of months, but you know our first sort of 150 plus deals, 
the average discount to market price, so to the last traded price, for a placement was 16%. Uh, so that means that on average, if it's a dollar stock, the placement will be done at 84 cents. And then one in four deals have a free attaching option. That's an interesting statistics. So I guess that sort of goes to some extent to talk about the risk that you mentioned before, is that there's the, the options are provided as another incentive to mitigate maybe some of the liquidity or perception of, of risk of being involved. Yeah, and I think the options are typically used by companies where the outcome is binary, right? So, you know, you're less likely to see an option in a, um, you know, producing you know, mining stock, uh, whereas you're more likely to see it in a specy that is going out and and trying to discover. Uh, and, and again, options, people have different views on this. You and I have different views on this, Joel, in terms of, you know, whether they're listed or unlisted um, and what their strike price should be and, and how long that they should exist. So, you know, is it a, a one-year or a two-year or a three-year option? Um, and 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 the strikes and then the ratios. So it could be a a one for one. So you know every share that you buy, you get an option, or it could be a one for five. Um, they're they're typically a one for two. I would say on average, though. Yeah, Ben, this is getting quite interesting because I know off the top of my head, you know, when I've seen um, uh, one for ones. Uh, with you know a, a certain price in mind because it's a one one for one and that you know every share they subscribe for they've got one option typically what I've seen is the price tends to fall well below the market price because you've got to factor in what the the tangible value of the option is even if it was unlisted so yeah there's there's a, I'm sure we could go and have a whole debate about this because you know I know and experience that a lot of directors of companies will prefer an unlisted option because it doesn't quite weigh on the existing price but you know a lot of investors and, and punters probably like the um, the, the listed option, um, so they can get some value on the market too. Yeah, correct. And and, and like everything, it comes down to it. Just you know, it's just part of the deal. You know, would you rather if you think you have to use it? Do you want a, a less of a discount with an option, or do you want a no option but a steeper discount? Because we come back to that supply and demand side, right? So. You see companies get this wrong time and time again. I won't start naming them, um, but you'll see them come out with a deal and then it doesn't happen and then it sits in suspension for three or four weeks until essentially another lead manager picks the deal up and reprices it. And that's a that's like the almost, it's definitely not the worst scenario because they've actually got the money and got it away, but it's not great. And that I guess goes back to the comment you made before, I suppose, about when when a stock might be suspended or in a hold longer than expected. Their people's minds race to the worst, so that might be one of the that's going on behind. Well, I tell you, the 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 ideal situation for any company doing a placement uh, is that you go out to market in the morning or the night before. Um, you know, a lot of people don't go into a trading hold the night before, but you totally can. You go out to market, you close it within 24 hours. Uh, you issue stock. You scale people back, you know, you get sort of 20% over subscriptions. And so everyone gets scaled back 20%, which shows that there was excess demand for the deal, but not a silly amount of excess. You know, we've had 
deals where you get scaled back 90% um, because the level of demand is just so overwhelming. You, yeah, the, the ideal situation for everyone involved is kind of a, a quick deal, let the company focus on the business, they get the money that they are after, slightly over so that people know that there was um, demand and off they run. That's kind of the ideal. So that's a good example there. And just to go a little bit deeper into the ideal scenario, are you able to just run us through what it, I think, not to repeat the stuff before so much, but just goes through what would happen traditionally behind the scenes in the the process of for when a halt is released to market? Because I think a lot of people on maybe social media and they might get an ASX announcement that just says trading halt for a capital raise for their stock, but they might not really understand what's, what's happening. And then the next thing they see is an announcement to say that's been raised. So if you'd just better run through, Ben, just the, the things that are happening that aren't visible to a retail holder. Yeah, so I think the um, the way that that typically works, so um, a company, when they go into a trading hole and they're launching their raise, they have been preparing for this raise behind closed doors, right? So they've likely got a corporate advisor um, or a lead broker running the deal. They've got their term sheet ready. Um, they're probably taking their key shareholders behind the wall, which is to say that they've formally invited them to um, become privy to some um, additional information that the market's not aware, meaning that those shareholders then cannot trade that stock uh, until that information becomes public. and. And they've probably done that to get feedback on pricing and indication, right? Is this the right thing? Are we on the right track? If we were to do something similar to this, um, would you be supportive? So that's happened. It's not to say that those people are getting a free ride or anything. This is an important process to make sure that, you know, the reason for the raising is, is resonating, that the amount seems to be the right amount. Um, you know, it's very similar to what you see in venture capital world where you have a lead investor or um, really anywhere. It's just validation of the idea. But typically that's happened. They'll go to the market. They'll then go back to those investors. So typically they'd go back to those top 20 investors and they'd go to the book of the broker that they're using. And that's kind of who will have the opportunity to invest. Um, the deal will typically be open for a day or so. Bids come in. The person leading it takes those bids. They allocate um, percentages against them and send confirmation letters out. And that's kind of the formal offer at that point to participate in the deal. Thanks, Ben. That gives a great overview. Just to finish up on one last question about inclusions on capital raises more directly, and we'll come to what Fresh does after that. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on what the JMEI tax credits are? I've seen a few of those appearing more recently on companies as part of their capital raisings. Yeah, um, phenomenal program run by the federal government, Junior Mineral Explorer Incentive, I think it stands for. But essentially, um, the government grants the company the right to pass through um, almost like a tax rebate. So you get your your tax claimed back based on the company's tax losses uh, and it passes through to the investors who buy new shares in the company. So 
you know, that can be through a, a rights, an SPP or a replacement, it's just new shares, but it can be, can be quite substantial. So to give you an idea of that impact, um, I won't say the name of the company that, that you know, we've been brought behind the wall on. Uh, they're a, a three-cent stock. They're going to raise it two and a half. And the Jamie credits, Jamie I credits, account for an extra half a cent of rebate. So what happens is, uh, so it's, it's roughly 20% of the amount. So if you put $100,000 into this stock, you get a $20,000 tax deduction. Just on that very quickly, that, they have to have participated in that financial year in the capital raise. You don't get Correct. that for just being a shareholder. Yeah. No, yeah. So it doesn't pass through just as a shareholder. The, the point of it, the government um, set it up such that it would help these really junior guys um, raise money from the market. It's an extra incentive. And what it, what it leads to is we've seen a lot of companies raise at parity uh, from it or close to parity or, you know, it's just an extra incentive to prop up, up, prop up that demand side such that when the supply of shares, so when they're trying to raise money, flows in, it, you know, it helps. But it's a fantastic program. There's a, there's a list on, uh, you can Google for the uh, listed companies with Jamie. Um, drop us a line if you want it. Uh, at Fresh Equities, we're more than happy to send it to anyone. Uh, and because it's all pre-registered before the start of the financial year. Yeah, brilliant, Ben. Perhaps that's a nice, interesting segue into talking about what what Fresh Equities does and, and where you're finding a value proposition in the market. With Fresh, what we've done is we've tried to aggregate and bring together all that information. So essentially, if you like a company, you're an existing shareholder. Say you've got $20,000 in it. Um, you are in a 708 investor, a sophisticated investor, but you just don't happen to have an account with that broker on that day. We facilitate that process where you get access to all of these deals um, without having to create all, the, all of the different accounts. So with 50 to 60% of all placements go through us, which is, you know, fantastic to get there so quickly um, and to have the support of the community to do it. And and then that way you get to participate. So typically it is quite seen as an insider thing and, and one of the reasons why it's seen as unfair, what we're trying to do is you start working with companies to make sure that a lot of their existing investors that are legally allowed to participate now get the option to participate. Because... Um, Joel, I know you like stats. Um, so one of the interesting stats since we've launched is that half of all of our bids come from existing shareholders who want to participate in the placement but just don't happen to have an account with a lead broker. And with 140 different lead brokers in the country, it's very common. So we only work with people who are sophisticated investors. Um, we would love to, you know, we're, we're very much driven by equal access or, or how we sort of say um, all access, no advice. So we're not here to try and tell you which stocks to buy. We're not here to try and leave companies' capital raises and try and back winners. 
you know, we're just here saying <clears throat> there's 750 of these capital raisings that happen a year. We think that if you already know and like a company, the fact that you don't have an account with the right person on the right day shouldn't preclude you from participating. So how can we make a very low friction process for you to get through? So, you know, typically in a, in a raise, we try and aim for sort of five to 10% of, uh, of the round. So if a company's raising $5 million, we want to be um, trying to contribute 250 to half a mil in that. And, and that tends to be made up of a number of investors that come together. Um, we handle all the individual items. So, you know, Joel, you might have a Comsec account, then you might have a um, CIMC account, and then, sorry, CMC account, and then you bid with us. We show the lead broker or the company one number. We get one allocation. It's very simple for them. And then we can split it out as many ways as we need to behind us. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's proved to be quite popular. We haven't done much advertising and we're growing to be a considerable contribution in a number of deals. Yeah, nice one. And I think one of the other things that um, investors should be aware or punters is that you actually put up deals that you don't have access to and it's kind of a very useful sort of uh, daily summary of the capital raising that arrives in your email inbox in the yeah, so we, we, you know, we made decisions very early on to be super transparent. Um, so we will cover everything. We will try and get access to everything. For varying reasons, we don't get access to everything. But we, yeah, so good point. So we send out an email every day at about 11 o'clock to say, here are the four you know, companies raising money today. We've got access to three of them. Here's some information uh, and click through to see more. Uh, and the fourth one we don't yet. If you'd, if you'd like to register demand, which you can do, please go and do it, which is probably another important part. Another thing that we, that we offer is letting, letting investors pre-register demand against stocks that they like. like. We've got a number of investors, hundreds of them, that only own half a dozen stocks. They're not interested in trading. They're not looking to you know, arbitrage the market position. They've just got half a dozen stocks that they like that they want to make sure that when those stocks raise money, they don't miss out. So they come on, they register, you know, they put demand against all of them uh, and then they just sit there. And that means that, you know, we let the companies know that we've got demand such that when they do a raise um, to include us and it makes sure that those people get on the list uh, when it happens Uh, because it is a... Unfortunately, it is a restrictive process, um, but we've built a system that you know you can sign up and verify in under 10 minutes, uh, and people can bid seamlessly. And we try to do it as inclusive as we can, um, but you know, based on legislation, both from a ASX uh, and an ASIC point of view, we we can't just blast everything out. So people have to be signed up as users. Uh, in order to see that deal information. Yeah, terrific. And and you were saying, I mean, obviously hearing this, you're thinking, well, wow, this is really great for, for the punter, but um, this is equally as good for brokers because you're finding that it's it's supplementing the, their bidding and the book as well? 
yeah, look, we we very strategically, um, you know, when starting the business, it's, it's almost as important to work out what you don't do uh, as it is to work out what you do. So we don't um, we don't do any brokerage. So we don't hold stock or or cash on behalf of our clients. Um, we don't try and take away that brokerage income from brokers, and we don't lead deals. So we don't take away the corporate advisory side either. So you know they like that because we're a effectively for them we're a desk in their office that they don't have to pay for. Right? Yeah, yeah. We we earn money when our investors invest in deals. It's free for the investor. We get paid part of the distribution fee from the client, uh, from the company. But that you know we've got no fixed costs for them or anything like that. Um, so that's been really really important for us. The other thing that we don't do is we don't hold um, or, or any of these stocks ourselves and we don't take what's called PA. So we don't bid into deals, we don't participate in deals, um, which is painful at times, <laughs> especially when we see deals that we like, companies that we like. We meet a lot of really great CEOs and MDs um, and, you know, places where I do want to put some money, uh, but we made the decision not to because, one, we don't want to be conflicted. Um, so we're a no-advice business and we don't want to have even the perception of advice because it's a stock that we own or not. And two, you know, if we're bidding into a hot stock, we don't want to be competing with our investors for allocation in that stock. Um, so, you know, if, if, if our investors want to put in... I'm just using round numbers, a million dollars, and we want to put in a hundred grand. That's ten percent of the allocation that would go to us rather than them. So we don't want to do that, um, and we also don't want to be seen as as a uh, a leading signal of just what we're bidding into, as an example. So it's uh, it's painful at times. It's financially painful, <laughs> um, you know, seeing stocks that we that we really like run like. Uh, Lion Town's a really good example. We we've got a um, one of our investors into that deal at two cents, which was a hard deal to get into, and obviously that's had a fantastic journey. Uh, has it ten bagged yet, guys? It'd be close. It's a very good it's question. Very close. It's a two cents. LTR. It's at fourteen and a half cents as of time of recording, and yeah. it's over fifteen. Yeah, just about. Yeah, well, it got to eighteen. Wow. <laughs> so almost uh, in the 10 back. So just, almost got the 10 back. Nine back. But yeah, so, you know, you see stuff like that run and you're like, fantastic. But it's really good because I don't sit there and say, oh, I wish I would have put money in. I sit there and I think about the investors that did put money in um, and that otherwise, you know, without us couldn't have got in there. And, you know, it's fantastic. Like I've spoken to them and they're wrapped. But good summary of things, man, and um, it's an interesting approach to something that's happened for a little while and taking a bit of a different spin on it. What's the best way if people are interested, whether it's companies or investors, to get in touch with you guys and find out more information? Yeah, look, if um, anyone can go to the website and sign up to the newsletter. Uh, you'll get a daily email summary of who's raising. If you want to see pricing, you'll have to actually sign up as a user on site. Uh, but that's very simple to do. Uh, if any companies or investors want to talk to us or brokers want to talk to us, just reach out. My email is ben at freshequities.com. 
it's proven to be really well received. We, we, you know, we, we're doing it the right way. We're not trying to push anyone out. We just want to make sure that um, people who are passionate about a stock, who know the journey, who follow the journey, um, get the same opportunity to participate as new people. That's our goal. Well, fantastic. So, great wrap. Thank you, Ben. And thanks again for the insights and information. And Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much, Ben. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.